Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with Russia and Revolution, which we started last week. It is a book about the history of Russia and what led to the revolution and how it went. Last week we read the introduction and now we're going to dig into the first chapter. This chapter will make reference to images and those will be included in the show notes, and if you can't see those, if you go to the website abnormalmapping.com on the post for this episode, you will see the images embedded there. So, let's get started. Chapter 1. Roots of Revolution, the 1880s to 1905. The collapse of the Tsarist regime in February 1917 was ultimately rooted in a systemic crisis brought about by economic and social modernization a crisis that was massively exacerbated by the First World War. Footnote 1. From the 1860s, and especially from the 1890s, the autocracy strove to keep its place among the major European powers by industrializing the country and by modernizing its armed forces, even though it knew that economic change would release social forces that threatened political stability. Time, however, was not on its side. From the late 19th century, the major industrial powers, Germany, the USA, Britain, and France, were rapidly expanding their geopolitical and economic might, threatening to reduce Russia to second-rate status. As Russia's extremely backward society underwent brisk economic, social, and cultural change, new social and political forces were unleashed that eroded the social base of the autocracy. Industrialization, urbanization, and rural-to-urban migration gave rise to new social classes, notably industrial workers, commercial and industrial capitalists, and the professional middle classes, which did not fit into the traditional system of social estates that was dominated by the landed nobility. These emerging social classes demanded that the autocracy treat them as citizens, not as subjects, by granting them civil and political rights. It was these demands, raised in the context of a war with Japan, that led to the outbreak of a massive social and political revolution in 1905. In that year, a liberal movement based in the middle classes, a militant labor movement and a colossal peasant movement against the landed gentry, built up such momentum that Nicholas II was compelled to concede significant political reform in the October Manifesto. Once order was restored, however, the Tsar reneged on his promise of a constitutional monarchy. Anticipating the next chapter, we may note that the years between 1907 and 1914, sometimes called the Years of Reaction, were characterized by a stalemate between the new parliament, known as the Duma, and the government, and a retreat from political reform. At the same time, the regime came under fire from groups that had traditionally been its social support, namely the nobility and the Orthodox Church. However, these same years also saw the growth of a civil society, evident in the expansion of the press, the proliferation of voluntary societies, and in a new consumer culture. So despite the dampening of hopes for political reform, there were reasons to think that in the years up to 1914, Russia might be moving away from revolution, as the countryside quietened, as industry revived after 1910, and as Russia's armed forces were strengthened. The international environment, however, was menacing, 
and the problems of managing a multinational empire were becoming increasingly acute. If the First World War had not broken out in July 1914, it is possible that the gulf between the common people and the privileged classes, and between the Duma and the government, might gradually have been bridged. But the war put paid to any such hopes. The demands of total war strained the industrial and agrarian economies and widened the gap between the common people and the privileged classes. It was the combination of utter frustration with the Tsar on the part of the political elites, together with mounting dissatisfaction with food shortages and the burdens of war on the part of the common people, that would trigger the February Revolution and bring about the overthrow of the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty. The great 19th century historian Vasily Kluchevsky once remarked that the fundamental characteristic of Russia's history was colonization on a boundless and inhospitable plain. Footnote 2. Lacking natural frontiers, Russia's landlocked plains, backward economy, and poverty-stricken peasantry made it vulnerable to invasion, as the Poles demonstrated in the 17th century the Swedes in the 18th, and the French in the 19th. Each invasion was repelled, but at ever greater cost in terms of mobilizing human and material resources, with the result that an ever more powerful and imperial autocratic state was forged. While Russian colonists moved through the steppe and tundra as far as the Pacific, the dynastic autocratic state steadily expanded south into Ukraine and the Caucasus while to the north, victory over Sweden led to the incorporation of the Baltic territories. In the course of the 19th century, Poland and Central Asia were also swallowed up. Into the middle of the 19th century, with few resources, the autocracy managed to rule its unwieldy continental empire largely by co-opting non-Russian elites. But the imperial ambition of the rising European powers during the last quarter of the 19th century impelled by the grab for territory, raw material, and markets, and underpinned by heavy industry, railways, steamships, and telegraphs, threatened Russia's borderlands and put immense strain on traditional techniques of imperial rule. Britain, Germany, France, Austria-Hungary, and Russia strove through alliances to maintain the fiction of a balance of power. But great power relations in the decade up to 1914 became, quote, an inherently risky game that included significant elements of bluff and gambling, and that largely revolved around calculations about the power of rivals and their willingness and ability to back up their claims with force, end quote. Footnote 3. After defeating Napoleon in 1812, Russia had enjoyed international preeminence in Europe, but this was shattered by the Crimean War, 1853-56, when Britain and France intervened on the side of the Ottoman Empire to thwart Russia's expansion into the Mediterranean. Following the Treaty of Paris, which denied Russia the right to a navy or land fortifications on the Black Sea, Grand Duke Konstantin Nikolaevich, second son of Nicholas I, reflected, quote, We cannot deceive ourselves any longer. We are both weaker and poorer than the first-class powers, and furthermore poorer not only in material resources, 
but also in mental resources, especially in matters of administration. End quote. Footnote 4. Defeat, however, precipitated the launch of a far-reaching program of reforms, which included establishing justices of the peace and a limited trial by jury, along with military reforms, which included the introduction of universal conscription, the overhaul of military administration, and the setting up of cadet junk and the setting up of cadet junker schools. Crucially important was the establishment of local government institutions known as Zemstvos, and municipal dumas in the towns. Had these reforms been carried forward, the chances of revolution in 1905 would have been much diminished. But in 1881, Alexander was assassinated by a member of the terrorist People's Will organization, and his son, Alexander III, reversed the liberalizing drive of his father. The reforms of Alexander II had done little to stem Russia's declining fortunes in the international arena. Following the severe defeat of Turkey in the War of 1877-78, Russia's gains in the Black Sea and on the Bulgarian and Caucasus fronts were whittled down by the Congress of Berlin in 1878, when Chancellor Otto von Bismarck reduced the territory of independent Bulgaria, created with Russian help, and granted Austria-Hungary, Russia's chief rival for influence in the Balkans, the right to administer the Ottoman provinces of Bosnia and Herzegovina. These concessions enraged Pan-Slav opinion in Russia, which clamoured to seize Constantinople, former bastion of Orthodox Christianity, and control of the Straits between the Black Sea and the Dardanelles. Bismarck's orchestration of the Congress underlined the threat now posed to Russian expansion by a recently unified and economically powerful Germany. Russia's continuing concern about the threat posed by Germany led in 1894 to the alliance with France, which stipulated that if one of the parties in the rival Triple Alliance, comprising Germany, Austria-Hungary and Italy, should attack France or Russia, the other would go to its defence. France would remain Russia's principal ally down to 1917, providing her with existential financial and military assistance in the interim. When war came, however, it was not from the West, but from the East. On the 8th of February 1904, the Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the Russian fleet moored outside Port Arthur in Manchuria. From the 1850s, Russia had been steadily encroaching on the territory of China. As the Qing dynasty declined, the founding of Vladivostok in 1860 was a sign of Russia's intention to establish its hegemony in the Far East, something that the British viewed with alarm. Japan, which had embarked on its own course of modernization at roughly the same time as Russia under Alexander II, had made great strides in industrialization and in creating a national conscript army and a centralized bureaucracy. And increasingly, it looked for raw materials, markets, and prestige to Korea and Manchuria. In 1891, Finance Minister Sergei Witt, with the backing of the future Tsar Nicholas II, inaugurated the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway partly as a means to encourage resettlement of peasants from the overcrowded Black Earth provinces of central Russia, and partly to consolidate Russian control of the Far East. 
Following China's defeat by Japan in the War of 1894-95, Russia pressured the Qing government to allow it to build the Chinese Eastern Railway as a shortcut for the Trans-Siberian Railway through northern Inner Manchuria via Harbin to Vladivostok. In 1998, Russia began to build a southern spur of the railway from Harbin through the Liaodong Peninsula to the warm water naval base that it had begun to create at Lushun, known as Port Arthur. Russia's expansion into Manchuria coincided with Japan's seizure of Korea following its victory in the Sino-Japanese War and brought the two imperial powers into conflict. In 1898, the naval ministry demanded 200 million rubles on top of its annual budget of almost 60 million. The budget of the Ministry of Agriculture was just 40.7 million rubles in 1900. In order to ensure the superiority of its Pacific fleet over the Japanese navy. Footnote 5. But the Japanese did not intend idly to stand by. In February 1904, they attacked Port Arthur eventually forcing the Russians to send another fleet to China, which, after an epic 18,000-mile voyage, was obliterated at the Battle of Tsushima in May 1905. Public disgust at the humiliating series of defeats served to harden opposition to the regime at a time when there was mounting clamor for political and social reform. Like all empires, the Russian Empire was a vast conglomeration of different ethnicities, well over 100, and religious confessions. The 1897 census showed that although Russians considered themselves the dominant political, religious, and cultural force in the empire, they were in fact a minority demographically, if one excludes Ukrainians and Belarusians, making up only 44% of the population of 122.6 million inhabitants. Footnote 6. The empire was ruled on the principle of difference, with the Russian as well as non-Russian peoples defined in terms of social estate, Soslovy, religion, and, for non-Russians, the hard-to-translate category of inorodsti, persons of other origin, a category originally applied only to the nomadic and semi-nomadic tribes of Siberia, but gradually extended to all non-Slav peoples. Footnote 7. The heterogeneity of the empire was evident too, in the complex crisscrossing of ethnic, religious, and social divisions. Ukrainians, for example, were divided between Ukrainian and Russian speakers, between the Uniate, Greek Catholic, and Orthodox faiths, and between those under Russian rule and those under Austrian rule in Galicia, where they were known as Ruthens. Footnote 8. In addition, in the nine majority Ukrainian provinces, there were Jewish, Polish, German, and Tatar minorities. Historically, as this dynastic aristocratic empire expanded across Kluszewski's boundless and inhospitable plain, it ensured domestic stability by incorporating non-Russian elites as co-rulers of the borderlands, by tolerating a panoply of administrative and judicial forms, and by respecting religious diversity, notably with respect to Islam. Footnote 9. As the borderlands of the empire came under pressure from rival powers, Ukraine literally means borderland, concerns about security intensified. Increasingly, the existence of different modes of internal governance was perceived as a problem, 
From the 1880s especially, this spurred the state into undertaking greater centralization and uniformization of administration. One dimension of this policy of homogenization was the policy, or more accurately, the policies of Russification. After putting down the Polish uprising of 1863, a drive to impose Russian language and culture got underway, which was especially vigorous in the western borderlands and the Baltic littoral. In 1881, the use of Ukrainian was banned in schools, and in 1888, in all official institutions. Enforcement of the Russian language and of the Orthodox faith was designed to integrate Ukrainians, Belarusians, Lithuanians, and others into the dominant Russian culture. Poles and Jews, however, were seen as the groups most antipathetic to Russian values, and were most subject to discriminatory legislation, right down to 1917. At the same time, there was recognition in parts of government that if Russification were pushed too hard in areas such as education or employment, it might produce a backlash. In other regions, Russification took a less aggressive form. In the Volga Earls region, for example, it entailed fragmenting a pan-Muslim identity by increasing the prestige of Russian language, culture, and institutions, yet fell far short of cultural assimilation. Footnote 10. In Central Asia, however, the mode of rule remained unambiguously colonial. A series of harsh military campaigns between the mid-1860s and the mid-1880s swallowed up lands as far south as Fergana, although the Khanats of Bukhara and Kiva were allowed to preserve a modicum of independence as Russian protectorates. In the Caucasus too, brutal wars of conquest of the mountain peoples and growing official hostility to Islam also produced a classically colonial form of rule, with officials stressing the need for the Russian element to spearhead the colonization of peoples perceived to be less civilized. Footnote 11. Despite such conquest, because of the variation in forms of rule over the non-Russian peoples, historians are no longer inclined to see the Tsarist Empire as a prison house of nations, as Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, future leader of the October Revolution, styled it. They tend instead to emphasize modes of accommodation with non-Russians, as well as modes of repression. Footnote 12. The principle of differentiation allowed the Tsarist government considerable flexibility in its modes of rule, assigning different groups different privileges and obligations. However, towards the end of the 19th century, there was a perceptible shift towards seeing empire in national rather than dynastic terms, with ethnic categories tending to squeeze out estate and confessional categories. Indeed, the 1897 census, for the first time, tentatively deployed the politically sensitive category of nationality. Footnote 13. The official preference was still to use the legal category of inorodsti, but that term had come to resonate with the sentiment of cultural otherness, and also, at least in the eye of the self-defined Russian element, with a sense of threat to the integrity of the state. By the 20th century, therefore, the empire had become an unstable compound of a dynastic aristocratic empire, what Capella calls Hausmacht, a nationalizing state, and a colonial regime, the last most evident in Central Asia and the North Caucasus. Footnote 14. 
Nevertheless, down to 1917, it continued to define itself as Groskiskaya, as a state containing all the peoples of the Russian lands, rather than as Ruskaya, that is, as ethnically Russian. Footnote 15. Nationalism was on the rise in Russia's borderlands, and would emerge in the course of the 1905 revolution as another destabilizing factor threatening the continuance of autocracy. The nationalist challenge was in part a response to policies of russification, especially in Ukraine and Poland. More fundamentally, it was a response to modernization, a highly mediated expression of the emergence in the non-Russian areas of urbanized, educated elites, responding to modern communications and the expansion of the market and political constraints. At root, it expressed the growing conviction of urban, and some rural, intellectuals, and of elements of the middle classes that non-Russian peoples possessed the right, by virtue of common history, language, cultural practices, or religion, to separate from their alien rulers and create a state having its own autonomy and territory that represented their ethnic community. Nevertheless, non-Russian nationalisms were not a prime factor weakening the Russian Empire until the First World War. Footnote 16 Autocracy and Orthodoxy Nicholas II came to the throne in 1894. See figure 1.1. He was an aloof, quiet man whose world centered on his wife and family. His diaries contain little about affairs of state, mainly comprising laconic remarks on family life, his physical fitness, hunting, or the weather. Footnote 17. Nicholas believed that autocratic power had been bestowed upon him by God, and he was resolute in resisting efforts to circumscribe that power by law or constitution. Even after the October Manifesto, which appeared to establish a constitutional monarchy, had been promulgated, Article 1 of the Fundamental Laws of 1906 declared, quote, The Emperor of all Russia is an autocratic and unrestricted monarch to obey his supreme authority, not only out of fear, but out of conscience. God himself commands. End quote, footnote 18. Nicholas looked on himself as a father whose duty it was to protect his people. Hostile to educated society, he looked to re-sacralize the monarchy, imagining himself as bound in a mystical union with the Russian people through faith and a common history. Increasingly, he looked for spiritual guidance to holy men, such as Grigory Rasputin, a faith healer revered by the common people, who from 1906 exercised extraordinary influence in court circles. He was hostile to bureaucracy as a principle of government, and his ministers, who no longer came primarily from the high nobility or army backgrounds, found it hard to gain his attention. The entire system depended on having a strong leader to coordinate its operations. Yet Nicholas did not even have a personal secretariat that could prioritize the issues with which he had to deal. Despite its panoply of military and administrative power, the Tsarist state was essentially weak, although certainly not ineffective. Central government had limited material and human resources at its disposal. Its tax base was narrow, its administration was understaffed, and it was impaired by overlapping jurisdictions. 
vaguely defined areas of competence, corruption, and rank inefficiency. Through the course of the 19th century, but especially under Alexander II in the 1860s, there was recognition that if the autocracy were to compete successfully with rival powers and cope with the ever-growing demands on government, the reform and strengthening of administrative structures was vital. Special commissions were set up to discuss administrative incapacity, lack of coordination between ministries, and corruption, and these generated mountains of paperwork. But projects and laws were drafted, only to be shelved. Nicholas II's two most outstanding ministers, Sergei Vita, Minister of Finance, and Peter Stolypin, Minister of the Interior, both recognised that administrative reform was necessary. Witte believed that an autocracy governed by the rule of law and by formal administrative procedure could achieve economic modernization and maintain social stability. And after the 1905 revolution, Stolypin hoped to see the monarch retain his authority while working with the new Duma, confidently declaring that it had parted from the old police order of things. Footnote 19. Some have likened the autocracy to a police state. Footnote 20. Certainly, the police worked vigorously to suppress organized political opposition and public dissent. Anyone deemed seditious could expect imprisonment or administrative exile to Siberia. The Okhrana, or secret police, intercepted mail and placed agents in public institutions and factories, and they were required to write regular reports on any unusual activities or deviant opinions. The secret activities of the revolutionary parties were fairly well known to the Okhrana, as they were riddled with agents, and janitors, cabmen, and others spied on the comings and goings of ordinary citizens. A strict system of censorship functioned, although it was eroded after the 1905 revolution, and there was a deliberate, if not especially effective, effort to prevent the circulation of radical literature. Perhaps the most telling evidence for seeing the autocracy as a police state is that it ruled huge areas of the empire by emergency decree. In the wake of the 1905-06 revolution, 70% of the empire was under a state of emergency. And though this was scaled back during the years of reaction, there were still 2.3 million people under martial law and 63.3 million subject to some form of reinforced protection by 1912. Footnote 21. Emergency powers allowed provincial governors to take whatever steps they liked to secure order, but, as the historian Peter Waldron observes, the delegation of such extensive powers to provincial governors sits oddly with the centralism one would normally associate with a police state. Footnote 22. Indeed, what is striking is just how few police there actually were. Until the 1890s, they were the only representatives of government beneath the county level. Yet, in 1900, an individual constable in the countryside, assisted by a few low-ranking officers, might find himself responsible for up to 4,700 square kilometers, and anywhere between 50,000 and 100,000 inhabitants. Footnote 23. Since policemen were far more expensive than soldiers, the regime turned to the army to suppress any serious challenge to its authority. In key respects, then, Tsarist Russia was undergoverned, and the bureaucracy too ramshackle to qualify as a police state, 
in the way that Stalin's Russia would become. Footnote 24. The penetration of the central state into the countryside was limited. A quarter of the expenditure of government went on administration, compared with more than a third on the military. But the power of the center effectively stopped at the 89 provincial capitals where the governors had their offices. The latter were personal representatives of the Tsar, subject to the Ministry of the Interior, and enjoyed wide powers. Footnote 25. Following the emancipation of the serfs in 1861, the nobility was expected to maintain order in the localities, through the new Zemstvo institutions. But the central government had few means of ensuring they exercised leadership in a way the government approved. Though the Zemstvos were elected by Curia representing the different social estates, they were dominated by the nobility. 74% of Zemstvo members were nobles, though nobles constituted only 1.3% of the population. Footnote 26. They took on a wide range of local government functions, including education, healthcare, agriculture, veterinary services, roads, and so on. Yet they existed only at provincial and county level, and not at the lowest level of the township. Their political heyday came in the years up to the 1905 revolution, when they pressed for political reform. But they continued to expand and professionalize their functions down to 1918, with their budgets doubling and their employees increasing by 150% between 1905 and 1914. Beneath the level of the county, Townships and villages were subject to self-government. At village level, the assembly of heads of household, known as the Skod, was responsible for ensuring villagers paid taxes and contributed to the upkeep of local infrastructure. Elders were chosen to elect a head and assailants to run township affairs, such as taxation, education, or charity, and to act as judges to the township court, which handled the bulk of peasant litigation according to customary law. In 1889, Alexander III instituted the land captain to oversee the activities of the township and village assemblies, and this official had the authority to act as judge in certain civil and lesser criminal cases that had formerly come before the elected representatives of the peasants. As the personification of autocracy in the localities, he was widely reviled. Footnote 27. An indispensable pillar of the Tsarist state was the Russian Orthodox Church. Subordinated to the state under Peter the Great, it was administered by the Holy Synod, a branch of the bureaucracy, which provided it with an annual budget. Konstantin Pobedonestestev, a notorious reactionary, was procurator of the Holy Synod from 1880 to 1905. 70% of the empire's population were assumed to be Orthodox and in 1914, there were 40,437 parish churches in the predominantly Russian diocese, and 50,105 deans and priests, 21,330 monks and novices, and 73,299 nuns and novices within the empire as a whole. Footnote 28. The church owned 3 million hectares of land and one-third of all primary schools, in addition, there were sizable religious minorities, including Roman Catholics in Poland and Lithuania, Lutherans in Latvia and Estonia, Muslims in the Caucasus and Central Asia, and Jews in the Western provinces. In Ukraine, most of the people were Orthodox, 
but there was a sizable Uniate community that accepted the authority of the Pope while practicing Orthodox rites. Only the Orthodox Church was allowed to proselytize, and any individual seeking to convert to another faith could be punished under criminal law for apostasy. That said, the Orthodox Church was never simply an arm of state, nor was it as rigid and immutable as it sometimes supposed. Footnote 29. The theological education of the clergy improved during the 19th century. Monasticism was reinvigorated, and the institution of spiritual eldership revived. In the expanding cities, efforts were made to set up missions for the working class, though the attempt to create strong parishes proved difficult. The promotion of a temperance movement among city folk was one of the church's notable successes in the fin de siècle and a few younger clergy who undertook pastoral work among the poor became increasingly vocal in their criticisms of the status quo. Footnote 30. Nevertheless, the secularism of the intelligentsia, the growing movement for civil rights, the rise of socialism, and the ecclesiastical perception that rural life was being corrupted by migrant workers returning to their villages all served to create a sense of beleaguerment on the part of the church. The 1905 revolution would bring tensions within the church to a head, and relations between church and state would come under great strain. Popular religion Peasant culture was permeated by the orthodox faith, which was rooted in mainstream ritual and dogma, but which had many local saints, feast days, and rituals, along with an admixture of folkloric beliefs and practices that the hierarchy sometimes condemned as superstitious or even pagan. At the center of popular faith were Mary, the mother of God, and national and local saints, such as Saint Nicholas, whose veneration was mediated through icons and relics. Footnote 31. An icon did not merely depict a person or an event in sacred history, but was a medium that conveyed the numinous presence of that which it depicted. Unlike the Eucharist, which only priests would administer, icons offered communion with the sacred in which anyone could participate. Saints look after the well-being of the family and village, the health of animals, and the fertility of the fields. They righted wrongs, cured illness, and offered general protection against the depredations of nature. The main feast days of the liturgical calendar structured community life and farming. The determination of local communities to promote local saints or miracle-working icons could lead to tension with the hierarchy, although there is evidence that after 1905 the ecclesiastical authorities were more willing to tolerate what once they might have regarded as semi-pagan. The critical stages of the life cycle, birth, marriage, death, were marked by rituals of faith. A newborn baby, for example, still considered only partly human, was particularly vulnerable to demonic force. The birth was followed by the ritual burial of the placenta and consultation between midwife and priest on the child's name. Eight days after birth, baptism would take place, after which family and friends would celebrate with a meal in which buckwheat would be eaten swollen grains symbolizing new birth, and at which the midwife would say a special grace to ask God's blessing on the child. Footnote 32. At the heart of peasant religion was demonic evil, the unclean force, which over the centuries had become centered on the Christian devil, but which still extended to the spirits of the fields, forests, and rivers. 
In V. I. Dahl's Dictionary of 1864, there were over 40 names for devils and sprites. One should not infer that religious culture was unchanging. The forces of modernization brought changes. Railways encouraged the faithful to go on pilgrimage, increasing literacy allowed them to read newspaper stories and pamphlets about miraculous healings or the activities of charismatic spiritual elders. Lithography allowed them to buy cheap, mass-produced icons. Between 1861 and 1914, rural communities, especially in the north, almost doubled the number of chapels. These being separate administratively from the parish church, often out of a desire to commemorate events that linked the community to the Russian nation. Footnote 33. Migration and schooling encouraged a more distanced, more individualistic orientation to religious belief. Yet it would be misleading to suggest that secularization was taking place, since the indices of religiosity do not obviously signal a decline in religious observance. In Voronezh province, for example, church attendance did fall slightly between 1860 and 1914, but the annual obligation to take the sacraments continued to be maintained. Footnote 34. In other words, this was still a robustly religious society, into which a regime bent on promoting state-backed atheism would erupt in 1917. The 1905 revolution fostered a more critical attitude towards the church on the part of many ordinary people. Anti-clericalism had always been deep-rooted in popular culture, and this fed to a more sustained criticism of the institutional church. This was very much in response to the hierarchy's resolute condemnation of social disorder and its demand that the people respect their rights of property and submit to divinely ordained authority. In particular, peasants cast hungry eyes on the three million hectares of land that belonged to the church. Insufficient, in fact, to maintain all parishes at the legal norm of 47.8 hectares a parish. While some demanded that parishioners have the right to elect their clergy. Footnote 35. Among workers, mistrust of the institutional church was more marked, although, as in the countryside, this did not necessarily mean that irreligion was on the increase, as many contemporary churchmen claimed. Down to 1917, for example, it was common for workers to contribute their kopecks to buy oil for the icon lamps that were to be, that were to be found in most workplaces. Over the centuries, Russia had developed a strong tradition of apocalyptic thought at both elite and popular levels, and in the last years of the Ancien Régime, there was a surge of apocalyptic sentiment among religious thinkers, literary figures, and in the populace at large. Footnote 36. According to the American historian James Billington, quote, Nowhere else in Europe was the volume of intensity of apocalyptic literature comparable to that found in Russia during the reign of Nicholas II. The stunning defeat by Japan in 1904-1905 and the ensuing revolution left an extraordinarily large number of Russians with the feeling that life as they had known it was coming to an end. Foot <laughs> end quote. Footnote 37. In some ways, this was odd, since there was no tradition of Bible reading in Russia except among the Protestant denominations, which had begun to grow in the latter part of the 19th century, 
and among the old believers who had split from the church in the 1660s in protest at reforms of Patriarch Nikon. Works attributed to Seraphim of Sarov, 1754-1833, who was canonized in 1903 at the behest of the Tsar, predicted that before the Russian people could receive God's mercy, they must suffer under men who would kill the Tsar and trample on God's law. The writings of John of Kronstadt, and the preaching of his followers, were crucial in promoting a message that Russia was sliding towards the abyss, a message propagated through stories such as the one in which John had refused to bless children brought to him, predicting that they would grow into live devils. Footnote 38. The dominant strain of apocalypticism was politically reactionary, passionately orthodox, strongly committed to autocracy, anti-Semitic, anti-democratic, anti-socialist, and anti-Western. Footnote 39. Popular apocalypticism was permeated by a sense that God's presence could no longer be discerned in the secular world, and that this was the prelude to the last times. It manifested itself, for example, in a wave of discoveries of icons, whose image and color had been miraculously renewed, a phenomenon that would take on a mass form in the 1920s. And that's going to do it for this week's reading. Next week we'll be continuing with this chapter, setting the stage for the years to come. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show was hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, or go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to find various Patreon shows, various tiers. I would vouch for them all. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>